Do you want to learn apologetics but become bogged down by weighty terms and philosophical concepts? Do you want to learn how to defend your faith but you don't have the time and finances to afford seminary training? If this describes you, then the layman's manual on Christian apologetics is for you. Written with a layperson in mind, the layman's manual on Christian apologetics defends the rationality of the Christian faith in terms accessible to everyone while adding practical insights and humorous stories. Gary Habermas has added a foreword to the work in which he describes the need for apologetics in the church. Full of useful resources, the layman's manual on Christian apologetics discusses the essence of truth and how you can know what is true before defending the existence of God, talking about the problem of evil, miracles, then noting the historical reasons for believing that Jesus' resurrection was an authentic event of history, and also describing how you can trust the words of the New Testament. I am pleased to announce that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available at withandstock.com and at amazon.com. I appreciate it, and may God bless. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I am joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetics and theological questions of the day. Yeah, Curtis, it's good to have good to be on the podcast and looking forward to this new format. This is uh, this is going to be something enjoyable. I uh, I'm really thinking this is uh, something new, something we get to enjoy uh, having a discussion uh, and people get to hear uh, maybe something from from two different uh, angles. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So, Brian, uh, let's start off with the question uh, question of the day, uh, the new book. The new book has been released, and uh, uh, how is that going? Well, it's going really well, and uh, the 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 book is uh, the whole process has been a, has been a very interesting. It uh, the concept. I mean, I've always wanted to write a book, and you know, of course, uh, you know, write a lot of articles at Bellator Christie, and so I was asked by our uh, director of missions uh, for for our denomination, Dan Merritt, to um, uh, to prepare an apologetics course 
for the seminary extension program of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, so he was working with Dr. Williams in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we came up with this class. And uh, what basically happened is, uh, is, is I looked at the notes and, and said, Dr. Merritt, you know, the, this, is, this, this is enough to produce a book. I said, do you care if I uh, beef this up and make it into a book? And he said, well, it's your material. Do with it as you please. And so um, from the class notes that I developed, I uh, added about 80 to 100 pages of additional material and also including... Um, also added the uh, appendices at the back of the book, and so uh, the book was born. I sent it to uh, Whiff and Stock, and uh, sent a book proposal to them. And uh, lo and behold, they took me up on it, and and so the rest is history. Um, the book is doing really well. It's made the top one hundred uh, of the. Um, I'm assuming it's the the best sellers, new releases of uh, in Christian in the genre of Christian apologetics. So uh, yeah, very blessed for that to have happened. I think. Uh, uh, it's, it's gotten as high as, from what I have seen, it's gotten as high as 52, and uh, it's right up there in the area of, uh, along with a book by, uh, one of the latest book with the essays of Norman Geisler, and so I thought, man, uh, wow. <laughs> I was really honored to, to be wow. close to where his uh, book of essays were, so, uh, <laughs> but uh, love for it to be in the top 50, but hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, proud and honored for it to be in the top 100. I'm just proud for it to be there anyhow. So uh, uh, this it's been a very intriguing process, and and my whole prayer for this is that uh, is that God would use this in the same way uh, that He blessed uh, my life through the work of apologists and theologians uh, like Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, uh, sure. uh, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, many others uh, that that it would do do something similar for those who may be struggling with their faith right. or you know looking for answers. Right, right, and. You know, from what uh, from what I know, what we've read, um, you know, it gives uh, practical and tangible uh, things for us to be able to put it into our language, um, you know, and, and not have such uh, big words or big ideas. It actually brings it into a more of a practical application. And I I've been enjoying reading it. I've I've uh, really enjoyed being on the book launch team. And it's uh, it's definitely been been a journey um, seeing this and. You know, um, our prayer for it uh, was was that it helps people um, really start thinking about what they're act- uh, reading or how to communicate or how to even be able to uh, interact with other people. And a- absolutely, and, and I've been teaching a course. I've been honored to teach uh, the first course. Uh, from from the book and the material and and uh, yeah, some of it has still been challenging because some of the concepts were new to some folks. But all in all, I think everybody is appreciative. I even had one man who uh, came up and told me, he said, in our youth program at church, we are seeing these questions emerge, and we don't know how to answer them. And so I think this course has really been beneficial uh, for them, and as I think the book will too, to, as you said, to, to simplify or at least explain the words uh, to a level that everyone understands, and I think that's been a big hindrance for people who've been wanting to get into the area of apologetics and theology, just deciphering through these million-dollar words. What do they mean? What do they mean by that? And and I, you know, that's that's. I have a real heart for for trying to take these truths and and to um, dissect them and and make them avail- available for everyone. Right. 
Right. Yeah, and it's it's funny because um, you know we you talk about in the book um, uh, you, a question that comes up with my even in my circles and my wife and some friends. It's almost like we got to back up and explain what an apologist is. You know, we're not apologizing for anything. We're actually giving a defense. We're actually giving quite the opposite of what apologies our apology is. You know, um, and so it makes it. It, it, this book really brings that into um, an idea or uh, brings it into the the forefront of us being able to say this is what an apologist is absolutely I even had my father-in-law he asked me once I uh, had a book uh, had the book published and uh, we first received the copies he looked at me and said what in the world is apologetics <laughs> <laughs> he said man this, yeah. this is cool that you wrote a book but what is apologetics what is <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not it's not a, a a manual for working on washing machines. It's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. So, hey, we had some uh, questions come in, and I think this is going to be something that maybe um, as we start um, start sparking uh, the ideas of questions being brought to us, and it's 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 easy enough to get uh, the questions brought in. Um, they can go to Bellator Christie and, and they can go on to there and actually email these things in. So uh, I think, you know, the more we get into these kind of questions uh, that we have, um, people will see how you and I and maybe help we can help kind of go back to this book and, and be able to help show how to work through some of these problems that we see or these questions that we have come up. Absolutely. So, I have a I have a question here. Let's start out with the first one. Um, uh, here you go. If if you had only a brief moment to give advice in hermeneutics, what would it be? And that's a wonderful question. In chapter four, I think it's chapter fourteen. Uh, I deal with the issue of biblical authority, and um, a lot of times we're met with questions not only by unbelievers but by believers alike about what are these apparent discrepancies uh, in, in the scriptures, or at least we th feel them to be discrepancies. And so what I tried to do in that chapter was, it's kind of like the illustration where they talk about bank tellers. They don't learn all of the counterfeit bills, but they go back and learn so well what a genuine bill is that they can easily spot and detect the, the fake ones when they come by. And so I think good, proper biblical hermeneutics uh, which hermeneutics means interpreting the scriptures. I think that's key in understanding uh, what what the scripture uh, is trying to convey. So, um, as far as advice and hermeneutics, uh, l let me just go back and give two words. There's there's one word called exegesis, which means out from a writing, and there's another word called eisegesis. Uh, which means reading something into the writing. And so exegesis is what we want to do. We want to allow the Scripture to speak for itself. And and while there are several tools uh, that, that one can use, the best, the best tool as far as a starting uh, advice that I would give anyone would be re really two, well, really threefold. First of all, keep it in context. Uh, context is king, and in fact, uh, um, 
in, in Liberty, they tell us that, uh, that, the, that the best sense, let's see, wait a minute, uh, the plain sense is the best sense unless it becomes nonsense when you're reading a passage <laughs> of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so keep it in the context of what's being said. And that leads to the second one. Don't read Bible verses, read Bible passages. Uh, because sure. the, yeah. Bi- the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. That didn't come until right. much later. So, so keep it in, in uh, the context. I remember someone said one time, if a verse doesn't make sense, read the paragraph. And if the paragraph doesn't make sense, uh, read the chapter. And if the chapter doesn't make sense, uh, read the book. And then, and then keep the book in, in, um, in the context of the overall scripture. And the third thing I would say, uh, too, is to understand the genre. And in the book, I talk about eight different types of genre. Uh, that are found in scripture and these are different writing styles that's found and so you have poetry Mm -hmm. you have uh, the biographies found in the gospels you have the law apocalyptic literature and and many more and so i think understanding the genre and the historical context as well i think those things help us uh, to understand what what the biblical author is trying to convey right right and you know we i've heard it um i've heard it said you know, um, even from my pastor, you know, um, we understand we should we should understand the overall story, what's trying to be conveyed, and then if we don't understand that part, we scoot back and we understand what's the complete story that that the Bible is actually trying to convey or to to push through to us that we understand, and and being able to um, know that uh, each each step, um, each step outward allows us to get a grander scope of it, but it also, as we go inward to those smaller verses or smaller parts, you know, the chapter and the, into the uh, paragraph and into that verse, what it does is it allows us to then fine-tune what we're actually being able to read and understand. What we want to stay away from is taking something and a, uh, some some sort of verse out of context, applying it to something that really doesn't make any sense, and we end up and I call it uh, I call it fortune cookie uh, <laughs> fortune cookie reading. You know, we we pull a a context out, you know, or a or a verse out, and we apply it to our life, and and uh, you know about that. We we go and we apply these these verses to what we're doing that day and this is how i read my bible is to just one verse at a time well what do you do when you when you get to those verses where like you know judas went and hung himself i mean you're not going to go out and you know it's you can't apply those those things to you you've got to get the grander scope of things right yeah and and i I would say in that too that that with biblical interpretation remember there's always one truth behind the passage of scripture but i think there may be multiple applications so going back to what you were saying i I would agree that we need to keep the the large scope of scripture in mind because because the main scope of of scripture is god's salvific work uh in in humanity i mean that's why he included in, in the revelation the whole story of the fall going all the way you know creation fall going to jesus uh in, in into revelation talking about the redemption of creation and so we see this salvific process taking place and so yeah you're right i i think that uh, we have to keep in mind that 
that there is a truth. Now, I do think that within passages of Scripture, you, you have one truth being communicated, but there may be multiple applications. So, for, sure. for, for instance, with Judas Iscariot, you might can say that... that um, when a person, you know, looking at the story that is obviously talking about Judas and him hanging himself, an application you might could draw from that is to say that uh, when when you reject Christ, when you when you live a life without Christ, uh, you're more inclined to do things. It brings bad things upon one's life, and uh, will lead in bad directions. I mean, there may be more applications you can draw from that, sure. but but, sure. but you can tie you can tie in the story and find the overarching moral principle uh, to to as. Uh, I think it's Duvall and Hayes that make the comparison. I think they call it the principalizing bridge. Uh, taking the truths that are found in Scripture, finding that theological principle, and then taking it over and applying it to a person's life. So there again, I, I would say that every passage of Scripture has one truth, uh, but but multiple applications. Right, right, right. Well, the next question um, is how can we get past a one-sided feeling in our walk with Christ. And that goes into one-sided on the believer's part. So I guess on this question, is the person asking that, uh, that, that we feel that we're, um, we're doing all the work? Is, is that what the, what the person was asking? That's kind of what I'm getting out of it, is like, uh, it's like they, they read... They pray, but they're not feeling like God is is in contact with them, or or giving them direction, or or uh, they don't feel like there's another there's any interaction. Okay, okay. W- one of the things I think is very important is is that we may not always have the the. Um, uh, the, the the tingling feelings and emotions that that come you know sometimes you're in a service and you can you can sense the spirit of God is moving strong and and you can you can just feel the spirit of God strongly then other times it um it, we, we may go, go through those dry times in our spiritual walk with Christ I would I would just encourage people to um if if they feel that God's not communicating, I would just basically again have a regular devotional period with the Lord. Um, I think it's in Mark's Gospel that talks about uh, Jesus taking time off by Himself and uh, spending mm-hmm. with the Father and uh, mm-hmm. removing distractions. I think sometimes maybe it's God is trying to communicate with us, but we're not taking the time to really listen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Too much. Uh, life is busy enough that we're not taking that moment. He might be talking to us, but we we're just not taking that time. Yeah, a- absolutely. So I think that it's a combination. I found in my life, it's it's a combination of of prayer and and uh, regular Bible study. And and what I normally do uh, is you know, and there's no. It's not to say that I'm going to always have like this aha moment or anything like that. Yeah. But make sure to spend some quiet time with God and and pray. You know, Lord, reveal what you want me to know. And and I think going back to that biblical interpretation, looking at the passage of Scripture and and seeing the truth that God is trying to communicate through that, and then applying it over to our lives, uh, I think is a is a good way. Even if we don't have the emotional tingles, uh, God through the revelation He's given us. 
um, has given us a means to communicate. Now, some people say that they don't think God communicates with people anymore. I, well, I think he still does um, in, in various different ways. But I think the primary way that he's communicated with us is through the Scripture. And I, and I always tell people, you know, as Titus 1-2 tells us that God will not lie. So right. he's, he's not going to tell us something that is contrary, contrary to what he's already given us in the Word. So I would focus in on uh, what God is communicating to us through the Word. And um, I think if we do that, I mean, r- really, if, if we go at the Scriptures and look at, at the Scriptures in that mentality, I, th- I think we'll, we'll find some applications. And then I think we'll also, if we understand God's overarching plan, uh, that, that He does have a plan for us. And in Romans eight twenty eight. He's going to take uh, the good things in life, the bad things in life, and he's going to make them into something great for us in the end. Yeah, amen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, next question. Uh, What is meant that Scripture interprets Scripture? Great question. So as we're interpreting Scripture, we want to keep in mind the overarching themes of, uh, of the Bible. And so uh, what we want to do uh, is we want to, as, as, especially if we look at a passage of Scripture that may be um, difficult to interpret, we, we may want to look at other ways that topic was, was dealt with. Uh, so, for instance, you may want to get like a topical concordance or something of that nature. And so if, if there's um, a certain type of... Uh, I don't know, say, say that uh, God is dealing or, or talking about a, uh, a certain sin or something like that, and it doesn't make sense in one passage of Scripture. Well, you may want to see how God has dealt with that particular issue in other passages of Scripture to, to get an overarching theme. So what it basically means is that the passages of Scripture that don't make sense can be illuminated by other passages of Scripture if we if we keep the major themes of Scripture uh, in line, and I think some of some of this involves systematic theology. Some of this involves doing topical studies and things of that nature. But getting the big picture about what God's doing, and and if our interpretation contradicts another passage of Scripture rightly interpreted, then that means that our interpretation was of that passage of Scripture was most likely wrong, and not the Scripture itself. So I mean, our interpretations so, can be flawed, but the Scripture won't be. Right. So you're, you you take, like, for example, you take things in the New Testament that seem kind of weird or obscure or um, just out of order. Uh, you take and, and look for it where uh, either that concept, idea, or words may have been used in the Old Testament to find out if God's using trigger words, God's using trigger ideas, um, maybe just overall concepts and trying to slide them into the New Testament so we get the overall picture of what's going on? Absolutely, and I think this is especially helpful when we look at the book of Revelation. Uh, it, it is amazing to me if if you look at Revelation very closely, you begin to see, um, if you look at it very closely with a discerning eye, you begin to see Old Testament themes and concepts appear within the book of Revelation. And so there are, look, for instance, like the the uh, tree in Revelation twenty one and twenty two. 
well that that's the, the tree with the different uh, the 12 fruits well this mm-hmm. is this is actually going back to the very beginning of scripture to the garden of eden and the tree of life uh, mm. humanity was separated from god in the garden it was separated from this tree of life but now you have this tree that has 12 fruits for the healing of the nations uh, where people are living forever and they have access to this tree well, what you see is the theme throughout the scripture is that God is restoring creation and humanity back to the intended purpose in the very beginning. And so what what you see is that he does this process by first saving the soul, and then he's going to resurrect the body, and then eventually he's going to resurrect all creation and have humanity to hold that full access to the garden that was once lost in a new creation. And so there is this there are these themes that you find throughout Revelation that actually point back to something that was discussed in the Old Testament narrative and, and it's really fascinating to really see how that pans out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you you see uh even uh concepts um you know, like we're going through uh, uh, Samuel, First Samuel, and Second Samuel, seeing how those concepts, those things that are happening in in uh, through David's life and Saul's life, and actually Samuel, uh, in in how it's applying and how things are pointed at in in the New Testament that bring those same ideas and tie those together. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's like uh, you know, Pastor Lynn Lynn taught us. Uh, you know, um, the, it's not it's not Old Testament, New Testament. It's not two stories. It's it's one cohesive story all the way through. It's just two different uh, sections or two different types of writing. Yeah, and and I do think I do think you have different covenants, and I think it's important to remember that you have sure. different covenants, and uh, uh, even if you want to call them dispensations or something like that, you know the ways that God deals with individuals throughout time. But but what you see is, is like I've always heard it said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New mm-hmm. Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So mm-hmm. even the covenants of old are leading to this, what Jeremiah talks about, a new covenant coming through the Messiah, which is going to be the ultimate covenant by which humanity can be saved. And so yeah, there's definitely a connection between the Old Testament and New Testament uh, that that's thoroughly found throughout Scripture. Right, right. Hey, we're going to skip down. We're going to go down one more question here to uh, another one that I just saw that I think uh, really... Um, is relevant to to today um, and how we see things. So uh, here's the question. How has moral relativism affected evangelism and the local church? Yeah, good question. Um, So by moral relativism, just to make sure I understand uh, what you're talking about, is this talking about how uh, are you talking about how there's no right or wrong or everything is... Um, right, what's you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> right. 
So almost as if there's no right, there's no objective moral standard anymore right. With, right. with individuals. Yeah, I think this is this is definitely uh, influenced. Of course, I think the whole issue of relativism, not just with morality, but uh, in general when it comes to the relativism of uh, of truth and things of this nature, uh, it, it has definitely affected. Uh, both how people outside the church view right and wrong and how people within the church view uh, the, the moral standards of Scripture. It, uh, one, one of the problems, starting with the local church, one of the problems that we're seeing is the fact that uh, it's very difficult to tell, um, morally speaking, it's very difficult to, to tell a Christian apart from a person without Christ anymore. Um, it's as if we we hear the standards that God has for us to live by and abide by, but then we say, well, you know, um, maybe that's not really important. You know, and I've even heard some people say, well, you know, I'm saved. What does it matter? God's going to forgive me anyhow. Well, and this kind of mm. goes back to the whole principle that you see in the book of Leviticus: "Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy." Right. And I think right. we see in the um, Sermon on the Mount, God's standards that he has for us for living. And so I think this has really impacted our understanding of Scripture uh, or or really impacted how we view Scripture um, because we have become, we've become really enmeshed with the culture. Instead of being transformers of the culture, the, the culture has really transformed us. And, and not for good. And so uh, I think that, that starting with the local church body, I think that has become very problematic. Um, and I think it has stunted the growth of the American church, quite frankly, that we're not oh, growing yeah. as a body in, across the nation because um, we have become so worldly. Quite honestly, and in evangelism, you know, this this is always going to come. It always seems to come up that uh, you know, if you talk about Christianity, they're going to they're going to ask about uh, you know why don't you support you know cause X or cause Y you know uh, and things of this nature because it's almost become so individualistic anymore that it's well what's good for me may not be good for you you know so I think that. Uh, when we talk about, as we talk about in the book, about objective truth, uh, that has really become uh, a taboo with, with many people in the world. And and so that's why I think a lot of times we have to go, like in Unit 1 of the book, talk about the, the, the proto-evangelon, uh, the, um, you know, before the gospel even, uh, or the prolegomena, I think it's, always, it's often called as well, uh, the, the work that needs to be done before the gospel presentation to, to reveal the fact that there is an objective standard, there is an objective truth, and right. sometimes that's a difficult road to hoe. Yeah, yeah, and and that's um, it's 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 a hard conversation to have with uh, people nowadays. Um, I I see it in in my own conversations, um, you know they they believe that there's a truth but it's a truth that they have uh may have painted or formed in their own mind and so what ends up happening is it may have a maybe a liking to the real truth 
but it's it's skewed or or maybe colored in such a way that um, they pull some of uh, some ideas that are not true, that are not that that don't fit into that. They pull those into their life and they claim that as truth, and then they become uh, almost defensive of that when you start uh, pulling them out of that, um, and they and they really have a resistance to it. Absolutely, and doctor. In fact, I was talking with a guy uh, attends our church, and is he's, he was talking about uh, um, in the Sunday school lesson, uh, the, the Gary Habermas was mentioned, and the three forms of doubt were were mentioned. And uh, the three forms of doubt that Habermas mentions is is one intellectual doubt. That's doubt that uh, guys like Bart Ehrman may have where there are genuine intellectual problems they have with, with something in Scripture uh, or something about the Christian worldview. But that is actually in the minority of doubt that's out there. There are two other forms of doubt. There's emotional doubt. This, this constitutes the largest body of doubt. This is where something has happened to a person. They've lost a loved one. Maybe God didn't come through and heal someone like they thought that he would. And so they are having a problem with God. And so 70 to 80% of doubt most likely is emotionally driven. But another large aspect of doubt comes from what's called volitional doubt. And, and this type of doubt is where a person is wanting to commit some type of sin, and they know that the Bible teaches something different than what they want to do. And so they just choose to doubt because they want to do what they want to do and they don't want anybody telling them to do differently. And, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people both in and outside of the church who have that kind of doubt. You know, again, it comes from this individualism that we have where we say that we want to do what we want to do and we don't want to have a higher authority over us. And so... Um, so going back to the moral relativism, I, th- I think that this this brings about this volitional type of doubt where um, where a person may have problems with Christianity because of something they're doing. I heard a pastor talk about one time he had uh, a young man, a, a youth, about 17, 18 years old, something like that. And, and uh, the young man, a youth, came up and told the pastor, he said, I no longer believe in Christianity. He said, how come? He said, I just I just don't believe in Christianity. He looked at the young man. He said, hmm, there's something else going on with you, isn't there? He right. said, what, what do you mean? He said, there's something going, else, there's something going on. He said, are you having relations you're not supposed to have? Right. And then he ends up saying, well, I want to have, I want to have sex with my girlfriend. We're not married. And, and the Bible tells me I'm not supposed to do that. So I choose like I'm going to do it. He said, your problem is not with the Bible. Your problem is with your sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's the problem a lot of times that we right. that there are many people who who don't want to have an objective standard. They don't want to have someone overseeing them. They don't want they w- don't want to have a god, as Lawrence Krauss has said. He, he's, that's what he's even said. I don't want there to be a god. Well, right. that that's not <laughs> that's not looking to yeah. the evidence. That's just what we desire to be the case. You know, right? Yeah, it becomes a heart issue. Um, exactly. It becomes, you know, uh, like uh, like Frank Turek says um, quite often in his uh, in his presentations, um, he has a you know an atheist or somebody that comes up that's real uh, real aggressive in their um, in their points and their discussions and not wanting to 
really even give uh, what Frank is actually giving uh, answers for or giving answers to. And then he pauses and he'll look right at him and he'll say, answer this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And there's a lot of times they'll just say straight up no. So exactly. He, he like he says it's not it's not a matter then of you being on uh, a a a real seeking quest of of trying to figure out what truth is. You end up you're ending up just looking to be on a happiness quest. So then that's where I see a lot of people nowadays just um, having their life and then sprinkling a little Jesus into their life. And so what ends up happening is. Um, they build upon this and then uh, wind up, if something happens, something goes wrong, well, Jesus failed me or Christianity failed me. Mm-hmm. And this, and, and so um, I, I'm not even going to give it any chance anymore. Well, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think that it becomes an issue then, where it, it's it's not having it's not dealing with objective truth, objective standards. It, it deals with a person's desires and wants, and, and we live very much in a Santa Claus culture, where we, we really let's let's be honest, we we have easy access to anything we want, you know. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. if we have a God who has these standards then it's easier for us just to say, well, let's just pretend like he doesn't exist and we'll just do as we please, you know, right. with, with our trinkets and toys. And and um, it, it becomes not so, as, as you said just a few moments ago, it's not so much a head issue, it becomes a heart issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then then your heart is driving your your choices and your wants, and it's and and then pretty soon it becomes easier just to hold your hand up to God and say, yeah, I don't need it. I don't need you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. These are great questions. Absolutely. Uh, um, got one more here. Um, and uh, let's go back here. It says, uh, when helping a new believer get established in reading Scripture, where do you start them? Or where would be a good place to start them? With without a doubt, I normally, uh, whenever a person, in fact, I, I've had people who come to know the Lord, and I, I'll, I'll give them a copy of the Bible, and if, especially if they don't have one, and uh, and and I always tell them with with without without exception, start with the Gospel of John. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'll share this real briefly because I know our times are getting a little low, um, and it's the same thing I told the. Um, the, the the class the apologetics class that we're actually we're wrapping up we've got one last week and and all the guys have done a real good job in the course and I'm re- really proud of them they they've really developed and grown so much in in the 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 eight or nine weeks or actually close to ten weeks we've we've been together and uh, but but I was telling them and it, when we talk about the gospels it's important for us to understand the audience the writers and the audience. To whom they were mm-hmm. writing, you know, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, so he's going to mm-hmm. look at Jesus being the fulfillment of the Messiah. Mark mm-hmm. is writing; the, he's documenting, writing down the teachings of Simon Peter. So the Gospel of Mark is actually the Gospel of Peter, and so right. Mark is Mark is writing to a Roman audience. The Roman audience they're not concerned with all the details; they just want the facts. They want you know mm. quick, almost like a comic book story, where it's popping from one scene to another. 
Luke yeah. is writing to a more intellectual. He's a physician. He's writing to a more intellectual crowd than the Greeks. Uh, they yeah. want a historical chronology. They want the details. They want to see how Jesus interacts with the Gentiles, how he interacts mm-hmm. with, with women, how he interacts with many different people, with children, and, and the lowly of society. Uh, so Luke is concentrated on that. But John, John writes later in life, most likely he's pastoring a church in Ephesus. Uh, he, he's, he's an older man. He's the last of the apostles left, and he's looking around, and he sees this second generation of church, uh, church members coming up, and he realizes that he's the very last apostle living. So his gospel is a theological gospel, very historical, historically accurate. I believe the details are, are, are inerrant. I really believe that. But he's, he's putting a theological twist on there, showing individuals who this Jesus is. So he has in mind future generations of the church. So for that reason, I normally have people start with the Gospel of John because the intended audience was for future generations of Christians. And so I think it's one of the easier Gospels to understand. I think it's one of the easier books in the Bible to understand. And it's so packed with deep theological truths that a person leaves that Gospel with a deep knowledge of who Jesus is. And so that's where I normally start people. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you run into that where people say, well, I read I read Genesis and I read Revelation. And you're like, wait a minute, you just read, uh, you know, 11th grade literature or 12th grade literature. <laughs> and then you're and then you're reading college graduate literature at the end and trying to figure it all out. And it's it's not it's not possible. Right. It's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Brian, uh, it's been a really good time. Um, I appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity to be be part of Bellator Christie and and be able to uh, and be able to interact and do this. And maybe maybe some of these uh, the listeners will be able to uh, now uh, feel a little freer to uh, write in and ask questions um, and and let's know what uh, what questions you have. Um, we'll be sure to put them up there if you want to remain uh, anonymous um, just you know you can put that in there um, if you want us to say where you're from then you know just tell us a little story about yourself and, and we'll go from there and we'll just uh, we'll start working with these questions and uh, I look forward to doing more and I appreciate the opportunity uh, you all just uh, have a great uh, great evening and uh, we will do this again later Absolutely, Curtis. I sure do appreciate it, brother. Yeah. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.
Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristi.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.